I'd like to, to briefly talk about concentration practice as home practice. And this certainly is a practice that can be done at home in the same way you've done it here. And by, uh, again, each time coming back to the breath, making that choice, you're lessening that contact. Are we getting feedback? You're lessening that contact with and the identity with the story, with the pattern thinking, the personality. So it can be very helpful in that way. We gain a little space from it. And we found with um, some people, some people had difficulty with meditating every day. And one of the uh, suggestions that we had for that was to look at what category you put meditation in. Because if you put meditation in the category of you know, eating, showering, brushing your teeth, this kind of essentials, you'll, you'll do it every day. And if you put it in the category of things like cleaning the garage, uh, you know, these optional things, guess what's going to happen? It's probably not going to happen. So we found just in that, within our own lives, just having it in that category where it's like for us, it's after breakfast every morning, we meditate. So we don't talk about it, we don't discuss when we're going to meditate, what's or, good for or you. if we are. Or if we are, right? If we just we finish breakfast and we go and we, we, we meditate. So that, that's one thing that can be very helpful. And the importance of sitting in a regular uh, pace, sitting every day, for example, is really a showing up. It's a, uh, a way that you're committing to your own unfolding, to really that part of yourself that's going deeper and is connected intimately in expressing the mystery. So you're, you're really making that known by committing to sitting e uh, each day, for example, and being in contact with your own commitment. Uh, we've been asked today, and we're asked fairly frequently about how to manage different practices. And as we've said, uh, it's really up to you how you do it. We generally recommend doing it in blocks of a few weeks or a month, for example. And then if you want to change to another practice, do that. Because it's, what we find is that if you, do within the, if you change within the same meditation period, or even the, every few days, it doesn't really allow as much of a deep dive in the one practice. So it's, a, it's sort of a mixing in a way that neither one, if you're doing two, neither one gets the depth that you might want to enjoy. So that's a recommendation, but you can certainly choose uh, however you wish, wish to. And also with this practice, what's uh, helpful is to begin to um, come back to the breath at various points through the day. So students of ours will start developing times, for example, they're waiting for an elevator, they're in line at the grocery store, the bank, they're sitting at a red light, a traffic signal. They'll start training themselves when these situations come up, they'll return to the breath. So they'll come and rest on the breath um, during those moments. And that starts creating little moments of continuity through the day that you can have. And that's really helpful to have with this practice. So you're, you're just collecting the mind a little bit in that moment. And again, really turning away from any of the chatter so that can be a way to support the practice, uh, your, your concentration practice also. And uh, we're really, we really stress sila with um, our students in our own life. And again, we look at it, the translation more as wholesomeness. And fundamentally, what we're looking, with, looking for with sila is how do we express outwardly in our life what our inner experience is? So how are we congruent in our own life? And it's looking at the ways that we feel we're not congruent. We're, we have certain behaviors, certain habits that we do that we don't think really express 
as well as they should what's our internal state. So it's beginning to make the choices that bring us more into alignment so we're living, uh, living what we know or as the expression is we're walking our talk. So this is one way to do it. And, and, and that's something that, for example, Tina and I come back to and look at at least once a year. What are we doing? What's consistent with how we're feeling? What's inconsistent? What needs to be changed? And then finding ways to change whatever is not uh, the, the, the best expression of what's happening with us. So it's a way you can support your, your practice. And also being aware of the ways that you uh, pollute your mind stream with all the electronic gadgets we have and all the ways we can spend countless hours playing with all of them, um, television, other things. All of that's very fine to have and to participate in, but there's ways that these days we use it as an escape. We use it as something that's not wholesome, that doesn't support our unfolding, our deepening into our true nature. So it's one of the ways we can look at what are we doing that may be unwise for us and what might we change again to be more wise, to be more wholesome. And then finally on Sila, we think it's important to also give yourself the space that if you, um, sometimes people will have memories of prior situations they've been in where they acted unskillfully. And we feel that you can come back to these. Um, we have students and we ourselves have done this. We've written letters or gotten in contact with people that we feel we didn't end, end things as well as we should, for example, and trying to clean it up a little bit. And so there's a way you can um, sort of free some of the old memories and the, and the places of remorse and regret in your life. So it's something just to consider if it feels appropriate coming up within your own experience. Yeah, so the sila really, we see sila, samatha, vipassana as practices that can really, um, they sort of form a cycle. And, you know, as we may go deeper in our inner life, then the sila is an opportunity to in our outer life, as Stephen said. Um, keep looking at are we expressing that so that it, it's not like our practice is just when we're sitting on the cushion. Really, our whole life can become part of how we are living that knowing that we can be in touch with when we're meditating. So the last thing we wanted to talk about today then is, um, is the Samatha practice as actually a wisdom practice. And for a long time, you know, there's been, I think actually what we found is that there's been a lot of misunderstanding about the Samatha practice in most settings, at least misunderstanding as to how we understand it. And we've talked today about some of those, um, for example, really seeing this practice as having a benefit within the purification of mind that's similar to in the Vipassana. People don't just see Vipassana's only value as if one actually attains stream entry. People see Vipassana as having a value even if it's only a daily practice, even if somebody never goes on a retreat. Vipassana has value, and we believe that it does. And most people do believe that. But somehow it's like a double standard gets applied to the Samatha. So there's a way where we feel that part of our, um, you know, we sort of got handed a baton of, of the carrying on the teaching of this practice unexpectedly. We were in the middle of our lives, and the Saida really wanted us to write the book and encouraged us and he helped us. He reviewed manuscripts and, you know, asked us to come to the Forest Refuge and that's when he authorized us to teach. And, and so part of 
what we feel our sort of duty to this practice is to at least offer another way of viewing um, this practice based on both the Buddha and based on what Pawak Sayadaw has done in his extensive scholarly research and practice, and also what we've seen as teachers and as yogis. And one of the places that we've really, um, as we've worked with students now for many years and seen people's trajectory as they've taken on this practice, we've really started to see that it is possible to actually um, experience what in traditional Theravadan Buddhism is called uh, insight or wisdom within the Samatha practice. So just to give you a little context for that, um, if one actually reads the suttas, and I will confess I haven't read them all, but Stephen has read almost all of them, and you know we, we aren't scholars, so, so we know, make no claim as to be that, but Pawak Sayadaw is. And we've also talked with other scholars who are interested in this practice, and if you really look at what the Buddha said, he talked about these practices a lot over and over and over and over and over and over he talked about them not only that but here he is he's you know when he went out of the palace he learned these practices from the best teachers of the day he went out and he kind of went okay who's the best teacher around i want to learn about these things he found the best one he learned the first through seventh jhana and then from a different teacher learned the eighth jhana at that point they basically said okay that's it you've reached enlightenment go out and start teaching and he really felt like there was more to it and that's when he added the vipassana so you know he added something really substantial to what he learned but when he actually attained full enlightenment who did he go and find as his first students who did he think would be people who could actually get it because at first the buddha wasn't even going to teach he sort of had to be convinced to do it. And he went out, and who did he find? He found his two teachers that taught him the jhanas. Those were his first students because he said they had little dust in their eyes. They were clear enough that they could get what he was teaching. So, um, And then throughout his life, so here's the Buddha. He's fully enlightened. He doesn't need to do anything more. And yet he kept practicing the jhanas throughout his life. He continued to do these practices. So this is where we have to really look and say, okay, there had to have been something that was really compelling to him to, to do that. And, um, and he talked about it all the time. So like when people ask the Buddha how to practice, he often, if not, well, I'll just say often, directed people to practice the jhanas and the large percentage of the suttas he talks about this. So... Traditionally, within Theravada Buddhism, then, it's considered that wisdom and liberation comes from seeing what's called the three characteristics. So this is basically what the Buddha said were the three fundamental characteristics of existence, that when we see them, we have the potential to be liberated from the ways we suffer based on delusion of not seeing those things accurately. That's kind of in modern language, what he was saying. And so these three characteristics are dukkha or, some people say that that translates to suffering, but we really like to, to use the translation of unsatisfactoriness. 
So really what this means is that whatever I get in life, say my life's going really well and I've pretty much got everything I want, I've made all my goals, you know, I've got the house and, you know, a good relationship and other things. At some point something's going to happen and I'm going to be unhappy again. I can't count on that going on forever. So pretty much part of the human experience is that it's unsatisfactory. At some point, no matter how good it is, at some point it's going to be not so good. We're going to get sick. Someone we love is going to die. We're going to lose all our money. There's going to be a war. You know, who knows what it is, but this is just part of the human experience. So this is one of the characteristics, and we can really see this in our moment-to-moment experience as well, that when we're attached, we suffer. The next one is impermanence. So really Vipassana focuses more on on impermanence and really seeing the arising and passing of phenomena and also of our own mind states and how we create a false sense of the me through um, solidifying that. And so this is another characteristic is impermanence. And then the the last one is no self or it's also translated as not self. But basically this is the experience that what I take to be a separate me um, causes a lot of suffering because then basically I'm, I'm sort of always compulsively trying to get things or keep things away in defense of the me. And this is why we talk about the thinning of the me in the Samatha practice. But um, within the Samatha practice, the, the, the characteristic that is the most accessible is the no-self as we talked about with the non-dual experience. So there is a way where it is possible to have some level of direct experience of some of the three characteristics in doing this practice. And so we don't want to make it confusing and say that this is the end of the practice because, and I had this question at a break, is the jhanas, if one does all eight, is that considered enlightenment? And within Theravadan Buddhism, we will say that within some traditions, it is, but not within Buddhism. Within Buddhism, you do, you do as much as you can of concentration, and then you do Vipassana. And it's at the end of, well, there's a point in the Vipassana where certain things can happen that's called stream entry. And that's considered the first of four stages of enlightenment. So, so the answer to that question is no that this practice will it take you to the first stage of enlightenment as it's defined in the Theravada, and the answer is no. On the other hand, there is the opportunity to really um, have a profound experience of no-self that is an aspect of awakening. So we just want to put the practice in a context that is can explain some of why did the Buddha talk about it so much, why did he practice it so much, that it's not just sort of, um, it's not something that's only valuable for monastics and people who are spending their whole lives doing practice, and it's also not something that doesn't have inherent value in itself. We have found for ourselves and our students that there is a way where even having a taste of these things of um, having the hindrances be at bay, of having thinking be at bay, of having some direct contact with our deeper nature, with our Buddha nature, can be quite profound and life-changing. 
So we were having dinner a few months ago. Well, it's actually probably been like a year ago. Maybe mm -hmm. it's been two years. Anyway, a while ago with some <laughs> other Dharma teachers. And one of these Dharma teachers, teachers who teach at Spirit Rock, and one of them had done a lot of research on what's called the Kali Yuga. Has anyone heard of the Kali Yuga? The Dharma ending age. And so we wanted to hear everything he knew about the Kali Yuga. So, um, so he told us the different, you know, in Tibetan Buddhism, they have certain ideas, and then a Theravadan, and then Mahayana. And anyway, and um, so we got kind of interested, and we did a little research. And actually, I think this was in the Ajahn Chandaka article, wasn't it? About the, the Dharma ending age? I, I'm not sure where it came it from. Anyway... Um, when the Buddha talked about the Dharma ending age, one of the things, he, he found that there were five, um, five, five causes that there wouldn't be an external calamity that caused it, but there would be five causes of an era in which um, the quest to really find out what we are. That inner quest would com become compromised. Um, he predicted this. So this was one of the things that the Buddha predicted. And he didn't really make that many predictions. That wasn't really his thing. But one of the five causes that he predicted was a reduction or marginalization of concentration practice. So you know, we, f we think it's pretty exciting, actually that we are, we are connected to Buddhism at a time when these practices have become more available. And, um, and that, you know, we're excited that anybody's interested, you know, that there's enough interest that we come back here every year and, and um, people want to know about these practices. So hopefully there's some chipping away at that Dharma ending age that's, that's happening right now in um, people reconnecting with the possibility of really having deep concentration as, part of, as a part of an overall practice. So thank you for being here. We have a few more things. We'll take some questions, but it's really um, a joy for us to share our love of this practice. And, you know, we sort of got handed this baton, as we've said, and we weren't really, our lives, you know, we have mortgages and had jobs and other things and have really done a lot to arrange our life so that we can teach and fulfill whatever demand there is and to be available to those people who want to learn about this practice and um, to carry that baton in this lineage of 5,000 years that people have carried it for a few years in our lives. So, um, so thank you for, for being interested and, and for allowing us to do that. And that, and that actually segues into uh, the, the Donna talk. Oh, right. And, and just very briefly, um, the way it works at Spirit Rock, you pay a registration fee for the day. That goes to Spirit Rock to support the facilities and the people here. And then for the teachers, the teachers teach out of Donna, which is generosity, so there's no um, prepayment. And then it's just, uh, there's an invitation for the yogis to offer Donna to the, for the teachers, and that's a way that teaching gets supported. 
And in some ways, it's sort of a pure free market system where if teachers aren't getting supported, they'll probably stop teaching. So there's a, a great way that people vote, uh, I suppose, with their feet and their checkbooks, maybe. But uh, one of the things I'll say about Donna that um, I found so interesting when we first started teaching, I did a lot of reading on Donna and found um, an article that talked about how the Buddha, uh, it, was a, it was a requirement for his teaching that there be Donna in the air when he taught. And I thought about that. Donna is normally translated as generosity. I thought about generosity in the air. You know, why, would, why would that be important? And I realized that really there has to be the generosity because unless there's the heart of being able to give, there isn't the heart that can receive. So in order for the teachings to really land fully, basically people need to be as open-hearted as possible. So I realized that really is an important quality and feature, and it's one of the paramis, one of the perfections of Buddhism as well. So there are some baskets outside. If you're so inclined, you can offer Donna, which um, for teaching today. So should we do announcements and then just take any questions? Yeah, let's do that. Okay, so, um, so just a few announcements. Um, if at some point you want to order our book or you have friends that do, we don't really make much off the book, but we're glad it's out there. It's, it's available on Amazon and places like that and also on e-readers. So um, you can order it any place like that. And if you like the old-fashioned hardcover, they're right outside the door there. Yep. We do have a website, jhanasadvice.com, and you can download talks for free on there. Um, a number of our talks are on Dharma Seed also, but we have additional talks that aren't on Dharma Seed at this point on our website from other places that we've, we've gone. And this talk will probably be on Dharma Seed, so if you want to download today's talks. Those are available as well as all of our other, well, some of our other Spirit Rock talks. Um, if you want to be on our emailing list, feel free to sign up and, and we'll add you. Again, we only send out very short, so it's sort of an update of our events and if we've uploaded talks and other things like that, um, that's on there. And we also do um, individual sessions, which a lot of teachers don't do. So what, the way this works is that, you know, we work with people by Skype or phone all over the world um, in either 30-minute or 60-minute increments, and there's a whole, there's a section on our website about that if that's something you're interested in. It doesn't even have to just be on this practice, but also can be just about, most people who contact us are really want to have some help with their overall spiritual unfoldment or may have specific questions and we are available to do that. And then uh, our upcoming scheduled retreats at this point are we have we do have a teacher in training and he also offers Dharma talks so if you have and day longs and day longs and yeah um, so if you know somebody or if you would like him to come to your location and we can't be there, he can often go. He likes to travel. He's giving a talk in San Luis Obispo on California on April 3rd, and then we're leading a weekend non-residential retreat there, July 19th through 20th this year. And then we're teaching our first month-long retreat this year. I think it's either full or there may be one space left. It's 40 people. It's all single rooms. It's in September at Cloud Mountain. It's at Cloud Washington. Mountain, yeah, which is just north of Portland, Oregon. 
It's a, a smaller center. It's got about a 40-person capacity, which is kind of nice to have an intimate group like that. Um, and then we have some tentative dates picked out for next year to do. We usually do a two-week retreat every year other than the year that we do a month-long, which we don't know if we'll do any more month-longs. But next year we'll have a two-week that will probably be in, is it in November? Uh, either October, it's October, November. It's not on the Cloud Mountain schedule yet, but once we're firm up those dates, we'll probably send out an announcement. And then we also teach the Brahma Viharas, which are also concentration practices. So this is loving kindness, um, joy, compassion, and equanimity. And these are really purification of heart practices. They're really lovely practices, and we really enjoy teaching them. And we teach them similar to this where... Their concentration practices, and they're done uh, with an object, and uh, we're really getting in contact and allowing with concentration that quality of our true nature to come forward. So, uh, for example, the metta, the loving kindness, it's coming. It's not a manufactured or an emotion. It's really a deep uh, quality of our heart, of our true nature that comes forth and we get in contact with. And we teach them, we know there's a lot of people who teach the Brahma Viharas, so when we first thought about teaching them, we thought, well, what are we really adding? But we really see that, like in our own experience and also in, in our students, that if you practice all four, there's a way that the four form kind of an interlocking system that's a lot more powerful than learning any one practice by itself. So we teach them as a whole system. And we, we do... A minimum of a week. So I think I think we have a week long that we're tentatively planning for around Valentine's Day. We thought that was kind of good for heart-based practices um, at Cloud Mountain next year. And that's all we have scheduled at this yeah. point. So we'll open so, it to questions yeah. in the back. Um, the results can be in any fashion, you know. You, for example, if you're focusing on a spot on the wall and then you take it where it's going to go. Um, whereas your practice is um, has more <coughs> concrete methods involved, and hence that's supposed to lead you to a more uh, designated state of mind potentially. Right, if mm -hmm. I understand you correctly. Having said that, would you be able to explain or suggest as clear as one might be able to um, why um, your methods would be more conducive to a specific state of mind? I would imagine you would be able to possibly expand upon things like, um, since it's more structured, you're putting your mindset into a specific state of mind, possibly auto-suggestions, um, uh, thinking of some of the certain thoughts that might come up and so forth. That's my question, kind of. In other words, why do you believe, um, or how, how does your practice um, get you better to a certain state of mind than, say, Zen, which would be maybe le perhaps less structured? Yeah, I, I, I'll, I'll start that off anyway. Mm -hmm. um, I, I mentioned part of the answer to this earlier, and I mentioned that I saw myself as a Zen student as being like a hot air balloon pilot that I could get the balloon up in the air. I never knew which way it was going to go or where it was going to land. That was my experience. Because when I started, I, we were taught to count breaths. 
And then we were given just the open uh, shikantaza sitting. So just sitting maybe with the breath, but really not much instruction. So I felt there was a lot of territory I wandered through. And with this practice, it's, uh, what I liked about it was it's, it's very specific. There, it's very detailed in the sense we have one object to start with. The practice unfolds in a very uh, defined way for everybody. Um, how, how it does it exactly is different, meaning I talked about the jhana factors, the joy and bliss, etc. And how those show up is different for each person. But the fact is they all show up for everybody as they move through access concentration. So there's a way there can be a uniformity and there's a way that we see that people as they, say for, say for example, do one retreat, a two-week retreat with us and get to some point that the next time they retreat with us, they can move through that territory usually much quicker and with, um, it's, it's like, you know, they've created a groove. So, so it's repeatable. And that's something that um, I, I think my experience of Zen was that it's not repeatable, that it was fairly serendipitous. And, and, you know, you all may have different experiences. I'm just saying what, what, I, what I experienced. Um, so does that answer your question? Well, and, and can I just sure. add to that? We should have been clear when we started that these, these aren't our practices. We absolutely, I mean, but for everybody to know that we learned these from Pawak Sayadaw, whose picture is back there, and he... he um, <clears throat> He's the abbot of what's now the largest, well, he's not the abbot anymore because he retired, but uh, he took this tiny little monastery and through really the power of his teaching and what he believes through his research of the, the suttas as well as other classic texts um, is what the Buddha was intending, although, of course, there's a lot of debate in Burma about these things. Um, turned it into the largest monastery in Burma, and we just had the good fortune to learn the practices from him. So we didn't invent anything in these practices. They're, they, we, the practices are exactly as we learn them from him, but what we've done is put a lot of context around it that make it a lot more accessible to modern Western people. And he and this will, was at his encouragement. At his encouragement, he wanted us, he wanted to, us to do to, this. To build bridges is what he called it. Yeah. To come with innovations that would support. So we're we're carrying a baton that was handed to us, and we've sort of put it in our own language. But um, so just to be clear that they aren't really our practices. Oh, I got it. it yeah. It's a it's a difficult subject to put into words. Granted. Yeah. And I cha I appreciate your <laughs> attempting to answer. Um, you mentioned Steve that about the groove. Would you be able to be? as clear as you might be able to be, as difficult as it would be, to explain how it is that the, the groove of the practice would be more uh, likely to get you to a particular state of mind than, let's say, the Zen using the hot air balloon analogy, which I think in a way does definitely fit too. Um, although I do like Zen all the yeah. same. But still, can you explain more about the groove and what it is it about the groove or the mechanics of the groove that actually make it work uh, and so forth? If that if it's indeed answerable. Well, I, I think it's, if nothing else, people will learn and see that the practice unfolds as advertised for them. So any doubt they have about it, they don't need to believe us, they don't need to believe the books, they know it's true for themselves, so that helps a lot. And also having worked through a lot of the, their own surf zone, they're, they're pretty familiar with what they're going to find there. 
uh, I, I would say for everyone, each, each retreat, there's new, new waves that come in that we don't know about. Uh, but fundamentally, they know how to work through the, the surf zone. They learn some of the technique for themselves, what's important. So it's more like this. And, and according to the brain researchers, it's creating new neuro pathways, neuro, neuro net pathways. So it's um, you know, just, just like the same way you know how to drive a car. You, you learn from practice and experience. Yeah, we're not, we're in a group of Dharma teachers and neuroscientists, but we're not really experts on that side of it. But um, thank goodness for neuroplasticity, where at any age, if one starts meditating, even for short amounts of time, it actually changes your brain structure. And this has been shown over and over and over and over. And it's not just this practice, you know. Um, it's still to be seen exactly how this practice is different than others because it hasn't been studied as much. And, 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 all, and all, the, all the practices are important and they all do similar things and different things. But it's really where your heart is drawn. That's what we've said earlier. Yeah. You have to, you're going to follow the wisdom of your own heart, what, what you're drawn to practice. Because that's, that's what you need. That's the step of your unfolding. Yeah. Just, just pick, you can, you can pick. Um, you mentioned that there were five um, causes of the Dharma ending age, and I wondered if you could tell us what the other four are. You know, I don't have that in my notes, and I don't remember. But I think if you wanted to know that, you could look up Ajahn Chandigo's article, which is called A Honed and Heavy Axe. And it's about Samatha Vipassana in harmony. And at the very end of that, he talks about the Dharma ending Could age. Could you so. say his name again, please? Or sure. It's um, spell it. Ajahn, and then C H A N D A K O, I think. Yeah, and if you, if you type in a honed and heavy axe, you'll find it. Yeah. Thank you. You're welcome. <coughs> My question is about um, the practice. So my understanding is that to to have access meditation really uh, your home practice would really not bring you there. You'd have to be in two weeks or more of a retreat to have continuous every day adding practice. Is that correct? That I mean, definitely that concentration practice mm -hmm. is very helpful and we all should practice. But to to get to move further to access and, mm -hmm. and to absorption, is that feasible in a 40 minutes practice, daily practice? We have students that report that they, that access concentration arises for them in daily practice. Most of them are meditating at least an hour a day though. And some of them sit several hours on the weekend. So they're sitting more than 40 minutes but but answer the question. It is possible for access concentration mm -hmm. on the, the on the light end. end. Mm -hmm. You know, we, we can access has a huge range from sort of the pleasant feelings where it's just really good to sit to where there's no thinking and it's right before jhana. So it's really concentrated and really dynamic. So it's a big yeah. territory. Yeah, and that's probably not going to happen yeah. in daily. And the same's true like with vipassana. If you want to reach a access concentration, it would be the same thing. So, you know, any, any meditation practice, if you want to reach access concentration, it's more likely to happen on retreat than it is at home. But it isn't, it isn't impossible at home, but it'd be right. at the lower end of the access concentration, most likely. 
Um, yes, uh, <coughs> excuse me. Um, you recommended that we, if we do different practices, to do them in blocks and don't kind of mix and match. Um, but I was wondering about the Brahma, Brahma Viharas and, and this practice. Um, are, are they considered different practices? I know it's a con Brahma Viharas are a concentration practice. Um, and I've been doing, at the end of my sits, um, doing a lot of metta because uh, um, I, I like it and I think I need it. Um, I've killed myself all my life and uh, I'm trying to turn that around. So my question is, is that, should I do that in, diff in a different block? Um, do you suggest that? I, I, I think it sounds like a good idea mm -hmm. because it's clear that it's what your practice is desiring or where your heart is oriented right now. So we, we have some people who will do five minutes of metta before they start meditation or five minutes at the end or some, some little block. But the, it's being a samatha practice, there is a way it has a complementary quality to it. So, but, but doing like samatha and concentration and, and the mindfulness, they're very different meditations. So that's why we normally don't suggest doing those in tandem, but doing it in blocks so you kind of have a deeper experience. Are we done with questions? We're done. Good. So should we dedicate the merit? Yeah. Okay, so um, we'll invite you now to dedicate the merit of your practice for the day. And um, what this means, within traditional Buddhism, there's a whole system of merit. And um, the Buddha, so really this means that by engaging and Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.